Well, uh, it's, it's good to gather with you all here um, on this Lord's Day evening, kind of echoing off of what Benton and, and uh, Robert have said. I think even if we're Sabbatarians or not, we can all appreciate uh, another service in the Lord's Day. It's twice the amount of biblical instruction. It's twice the amount of fellowship. It's twice the amount of opportunity to worship our God. Um, and I'm glad that our elders here uh, have been led by God to have more of these kind of nights. I ask that you join me now in turning to the fifth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. We are going to be looking in verses 27 through 30. Uh, as we've seen in the last sermon uh, given by Ian, um, we will see today again the self-righteousness, the false righteousness of the Pharisees contrasted with the true righteousness, um, the righteousness of Christ, the righteous standard that he sets this time uh, in specific reference to the seventh commandment, that of adultery. May God bless her reading of his word. Chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The uh, relationship between tradition and revelation is an issue that we as Reformed Protestants uh, are eminently familiar with. We understand in opposition to those whom we are protesting against. That's in the name Protestant. We are protesting against a certain group of people the Roman Catholic Church. We understand that the Word of God is the supreme and binding authority on all issues, um, and that we ought only to embrace traditions um, that are supported by Scripture, that find a clear root in Scripture. And, and really, that's a position that's been held by the faithful in all ages, and I feel comfortable saying that because that's what God's Word teaches. Um, and that's an issue that Jesus here deals with in this passage. We understand through uh, various writings of rabbinic literature um, and the works of Josephus, who was probably the most famous Jewish historian in the time of Jesus, um, that uh, the Pharisees revered. Um, they held dear what is known as oral Torah, um, oral law. The vast body of, of extra-biblical um, Jewish legal traditions um, and, and they gave to it an authority uh, equal to that of Scripture. Um, and this might sound familiar. Supposedly, these traditions were passed down orally in an unbroken chain from person to person, generation to generation. Uh, and this was the tradition taught by the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. So oral Torah relayed by the Pharisees to the people of Israel taught that the seventh commandment was in essence, uh, nothing more than a physical act of unchastity, um, the literal act of cheating on your spouse. 
Um, and it, of course, that is adultery, but we understand that it's more than that. Uh, but the tradition taught that this is all that adultery was, and this is an old error that goes back generations and generations. Um, but just because an error is old does not mean that we ought to embrace it. So Jesus, in, in opposition to the Pharisees, here offers a faithful exposition of the seventh commandment. Um, and that is important to remember. Uh, Jesus does not make himself a new legislator in the Sermon on the Mount. He's merely offering a faithful exposition of the law that's already been given. Um, he, he helps us to understand it in the way that God intends for us to understand it. And considering the man, you shall not commit adultery. Um, Jesus would have us to know that to even look at somebody with lustful intent in your heart is to commit adultery with that person. Um, that is, he would have us to see that this command is vast. It's, it's all-encompassing, and it has uh, a great breadth to it. Um, we see first that this command extends not only to bodily, but to mental impurity as well. Not only external purity, but internal purity also. Everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And repeatedly in the Gospels, uh, we see the emphasis of Jesus upon the futility of a mere external righteousness. He likens the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs, those who are clean on the outside, bleached on the outside, but dead on the inside. And, and I think that this is fairly easy for us to understand. Whenever we wash dishes, say a cup for example, um, we wash the entire cup. We know that a cup is clean when it has been washed in its entirety. We don't call a cup clean when we just wash the outside of a cup. If anything, if a cup is dirty, it's dirty on the inside because that's where the stuff that makes a cup dirty is, is on the inside. And if it's dirty on the outside, that's because the stuff that has made the cup dirty on the inside has poured over to the outside. Christ would not have us just to clean the outside of our cups and leave us with liberty um, to remain unclean within. Um, rather, he would have us understand that this command refers not only to physical action, but to our very desires, our imaginations, our intentions, our thoughts, and our passions. All of these are subject to the rule of Christ. To have lustful thoughts, to have lustful intentions of women other than your wife is just as damnable as having an affair with them. Christ would have us also to see that this command extends to the instruments of impurity as well as to impurity itself. And I'm talking about eyes here. He declares that even a look when used for a purpose uh, to fuel an impure desire involves a sullen sin, no less than actually committing the act of adultery. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says not only those who have seduced their neighbor's wives, but those who have polluted their eyes by an immodest look are adulterers before God. And this is really important to note. Um, the Bible speaks of sexual immorality more than it does any other sin. 
And so I feel comfortable saying that nothing so enriches hell as wayward eyes and beautiful faces. Um, Lusting and adultery, really sexual sin as a whole, is often the fruit of looking, of using the eyes that God gave us as a means to an impure end. And that is looking at things that we're not supposed to and looking at them in ways that we are not supposed to. And I, I think that this is a really instructive point that Jesus makes here in this passage. In Genesis chapter 34, we're told that when Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, saw Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, he took her and violated her. Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. We read in Judges that Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. In 2 Samuel, we read that late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and that David eventually sent messengers and took her, and she came to lay she came to him and he lay with her. And, and what is the common theme here? It, it all starts with a look. The most valued organ of sense is often the greatest instrument of sin. And to use it to fuel impure desires is sin itself. If the command of adultery were restricted to its literal sense, I think many of us here would have reason for pride, for self-complacency. Uh, I've never committed adultery. I've never cheated on my wife. I would never do such a thing. I'm not able to do such a thing. We would have a great confidence in our own abilities, but when rightly interpreted um, through the interpretation of Christ, this commandment affords all of us an abundant occasion to feel first humiliation. Uh, let's turn to John chapter 7, verse 53. John chapter 7, verse 53. If I can get there. Okay. Uh, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. If, if we were in this situation... Uh, it would go the same way. It should go the same way. None of us can say that our hearts are clean. 
None of us can say that we are pure from sin. If an adulteress were now to be stoned in the fellowship hall, uh, none of us would be able to pick up the first stone to cast at her. All of us would walk away, um, as did these scribes and Pharisees, one by one, self-convicted, self-condemned. Even if your conduct has been blameless in the sight of men, God knows uh, the depths of your hearts, where no man can look. And if all of our impure thoughts were exposed, each one of us would be seen as the worst sinner on earth. This sin should produce also in us great gratitude. Even lustful thoughts and wayward looks were paid for by the blood of Christ. Uh, he laid his life down for the sins of the heart just as much as he did for the sins of the body. And, and on that glorious end of days, uh, we'll not only be made free from bodily sin, but our very hearts will be made pure. We'll no longer have impure thoughts. We'll no longer use our eyes as means to impure ends. Considering, however, that we are not at the end of days, that the end of days has not yet come, Christ's Expositions should also give rise to circumspection and vigilance. And, and that's what I intend to spend the rest of our time meditating upon. In verses 29 through 30, we read, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This text refers to what's been called the mortification of sin, the killing of sin, and that's how we are to deal with our sin. Um, and this deserves our utmost attention. I want us to consider first the dilemma that's presented for us here in these verses uh, before we really dive into the mortification of sin. So Jesus makes it clear, right, that there are many things which may entice us to sin, which may cause us to sin, even things most necessary and dear to us. Our eyes, uh, even our hands can cause us to sin. And experience proves that that's really the case. Uh, any member of our body, any faculty of our mind, really anything around us can cause us, entice us to sin. And it's anything is capable of administering fuel to the flames of corruption that are within us. And the dilemma that Christ here presents is this, either to turn away from those things which cause us to sin or to suffer the punishment for failing to do so by an angry God in hell. These are the only two options presented here. Uh, just as there's not a middle option, a middle road between heaven and hell, Neither is there a middle option or a middle road uh, between putting to death the deeds of the flesh, between mortifying your sin um, and living unrepentantly in your sin. Nothing less than a vigorous mortification of sin will suffice on our part. Neither will God um, allow any diminution of punishment on his part. If it's as dear as a right eye or as necessary as a right hand, and yet it causes us to sin, it must be sacrificed. It must be put to death. Um, and it's, it's interesting, uh, he uses the word better. He wants us to see that this is a desirable option, a desirable alternative. 
Um, it may seem strange to present this as desirable, but it really is. If we had permission to harbor, to hold on to, uh, to give fuel to any sin, um, it would be like permission to drink poison uh, or to retain a disease that's killing us. And we know also that sin, even one sin, if it's allowed to fester, uh, will violently fight for the mastery of our affections, of our desires, of our choices. It's, it's like a flesh-eating disease which will spread all over until it has utterly consumed us. And even more, it's proposed that failure to deal with sin, even one sin, um, is a sure path to hell. To see the soul-killing effects of sin helps us to see the desirability of its mortification. Now, what then is mortification, and how do we mortify? First, I think it's helpful... Um, to have a definition of mortification as we begin. To mortify a sin is not to utterly kill it. Uh, we know that in this life, we as believers will never be able to utterly put to death the deeds of our flesh. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 writes, uh, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. John writes uh, in 1 John, I believe, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This does not mean that in this life uh, we will have no success at all in our struggle against sin, that we will never have a season of victory after victory after victory, but we will not be able to completely eradicate our sinful nature, and that's something to keep in mind. Mortification is, is not a total eradication of sin. I would propose mortification can be defined as a constant hating of our sin, fighting against sin, and success against sin. Uh, so a hating of our sin, fighting against sin, and success against sin. More about this later. Second, I'd like us to look at who it is that can gouge out their eye, uh, that can cut off their hand, that can mortify their sin who is able to do the things that Jesus here speaks of in this hard passage. Uh, those who are able to mortify their sin are simply believers. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have eternal life. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, a favorite verse of ours. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there's no condemnation, then it's not an option for believers to go to hell. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them, and they've been made heirs of the celestial city. And, and such an inheritance, as Paul writes, cannot be taken away from them. By their new nature, right, believers cannot help but see the value in sacrificing one of your members for the sake of saving your whole body, that it won't be thrown into hell. On the converse, those who are hell-bound are unable to mortify sin. Their whole bodies will be thrown into hell because at the end of the day they would, rather, uh, they would rather that happen. They would rather have their bodies cast into hell than to give up one of their members, to sacrifice one of their members. Point number three, um, we mortify sin by the Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to, deed, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount 
speaks of cutting off hands and gouging out eyes, uh, of mortifying sin and instruments that lead us to sin. He's saying that we do so by the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. And this is what distinguishes Christianity, true religion, from all other false religions in this world. Any other religion is going to tell you that you can mortify your own wickedness through your own abilities, through your own attempts. Uh, But Christ would have us know, God would have us know in his word, that the only means of doing that is by the Spirit. To attempt to do it otherwise is futile. Um, The flesh is powerless and is unable to keep the law of God. The Spirit mortifies sin in us, um, first by causing our hearts to abound in grace and in the fruits of the Spirit. As the Spirit causes us to abound with His fruit, the power of the flesh withers and dies progressively. The growing of love, of joy, of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the spirit of the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, um, that leads to the diminishing of indwelling sin. The Spirit also mortifies sin in us by renewing our minds. He so works in us as to create in us a hatred for our sin, a hatred for the things of the flesh, but also a love for God and a love for the things of God. He changes the way that we view things, and day by day uh, this happens. He changes our desires, our, our instincts, and the very way that we see the world around us. Uh, I think this is a legitimate question. This is one that came to my mind. If the Spirit is the one that does the mortifying in us, why are we then told to mortify our sin? Uh, and this, this is a question worthy of consideration. Uh, though the Spirit is working to bring about holiness in us, we're not left to be idle. Uh, sanctification, right, which mortification is a part of sanctification, is a cooperative effort. So the Spirit, in producing fruits in us, prompts us to obedience. And so renews our hearts and our minds that we desire to obey when the moment of temptation comes, yet the action of obeying is left to us. And, and once we obey, the Spirit uses our obedience as a means to mortify sin in us. So though we can't mortify sin apart from the Spirit, though the Spirit is the author of our mortification, the actual act of mortification is still left to us. We've looked at who can mortify sin, um, the Spirit's role in mortification, and I'd like us to, in closing, uh, consider what practically mortification looks like. It's actually quite simple. Uh, When tempted to sin, we need to act by faith in Christ and rely on His Spirit to carry on in us the work of mortification. Christ is more than willing to deliver us, um, and indeed, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, with the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, When we're tempted, we ought to ask um, for deliverance. Um, Deliver me from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Um, And to bring ourselves to those means that Christ has chosen to work mortification in us. The means of grace, uh, scripture, uh, reading scripture, meditating upon it, praying, taking of the Lord's Supper if possible, and engaging in fellowship with others for whom Christ also died. Uh, These ought to be our go-tos whenever we are tempted to sin 
um, because these are the things that Christ uses to bring about the mortification of sin in us. So, for instance, whenever um, we feel the temptation to look at a woman um, with lustful intents, uh, our first reaction ought to be to pray for deliverance. Then we ought to call to mind those verses of Scripture that speak against such a sin. We ought to meditate upon them and then rely wholly on the Spirit to do the work of mortification in us. Uh, that we might not fall into temptation. In so doing, right, we are turning away from our sin. We refuse it and we replace it with something better. It, it really is that simple. Uh, to our pastors, right, whenever you mortify sin, you set an example to your congregation of what it looks like to walk by faith and obedience in a time of temptation. Parents, whenever you mortify your sin, you show your children the power of God to put to death the deeds of the flesh in your lives and make plain to your children from a young age that obedience is more desirable than rebellion. You also show the necessity of being born again and the need for the Spirit to be your helper, uh, for Christ to be your Savior. To the older Christians in the room, by mortifying your sin, you show those of us of a less mature faith uh, how it is that we grow in maturity and in greater conformity to the image of Christ. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are constantly confronted by sin and temptation, and that on a daily basis. But we can mortify it by the Spirit. Uh, and we ought to be zealous, therefore, in doing such a work. Let's pray.